We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. As we turn to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 26, we're back there, pardon me, Matthew 26. Okay, Matthew 26. We're in verse 31. I had an interesting uh, situation uh, yesterday and today come up. Uh, somebody that we are familiar with, just kind of barely acquainted with, wrote to me and said, I've been asked to teach in my church a Bible study in the book of Acts. And this is a young man, and uh, he's had some Bible school training. And he said, uh, I've been asked or tasked to preach um, through the book of Acts. Uh, and how did he say it exactly? To preach uh, uh, th uh, theologically. Theologically. <laughs> and uh, so I kind of puzzled over that. He's puzzling over that term. What, how do I do that? And I've, not I've never really done this. So this is somebody who is in the shoes that I was in 25 years ago maybe now, uh, 24 when I started in Timothy training studying the Bible and uh, here in the Church Bible Institute. And uh, then in 22 years ago, I brought my first message to the church body um, in the book of Thessalonians. And so he's asking, how do I do this? I don't know if I'm capable of teaching. Uh, you know, he's starting from a blank slate. I've read through the book of Acts, he says, and I don't know what to do next kind of a thing. So I was able to give him some pointers. And how I did that was I said, okay, I'm going to give you kind of a play-by-play -play of my own study when I was producing these notes for Matthew for you all tonight. So as I wrote the outline, I wrote him a little message, and I did this, and I wrote him a little message, and I studied that, and wrote him a little message. It's kind of tell him what I'm doing when I'm putting this message together. So uh, call it a live, live messaging uh, through my study time. And I did that for uh, several hours. I had worked on this this morning and I had to have a break and then uh, came back to it and, and uh, worked on it some more. And so I was able to uh, do that. Very interesting thing. What we're trying to do is to understand the scriptures and uh, obey, uh, apply them to ourselves uh, by studying and praying so that we can explain them to you and you can uh, understand them and we can give application and you can obey them. Okay, so that's what exposition of the scriptures is. So I kind of changed the preaching theologically into preaching expositionally to explain to him how that works out and how it looks. And uh, I pointed out what I thought maybe was in the mind of the theological, uh, the, the preacher that wants him to preach theologically is that maybe he's talking about connecting your sermon 
to topics in systematic theology. So, for instance, you'll see one here in the text when the Lord says in verse number 20, uh, sorry, 31, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. And then it says, what? How did Jesus know that was going to happen? Well, it's written. Unfortunately for you guys, you're going to be scattered because the Bible said so. You might not believe it, Peter, but you are going to be scattered tonight because it is written. And so that allowed me to stop and think, okay, what is it because it is written? Well, that talks about the infallibility of Scripture. Ding, 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 there's your theology. You go right to the infallibility of Scripture, what is that, and so on. We'll see a little bit about that, although when we preach this way, we don't want to just turn it into a systematic theology class and start launching off into the doctrine of inspiration and waxing eloquent about all of that stuff. But um, that was the idea that I, I thought maybe was the, what he was being asked to do. So this fellow, uh, I hope, was helped by this. Let's, let's turn then to our, our attention to Matthew 26, where the scripture says, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble me this, uh, because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. So, bad news keeps coming here for the disciples. Someone was about to betray Jesus. We read that before. Um, Jesus is not going to share the fruit of the vine again with them until he does it new with them in the kingdom of God. And then now Jesus makes another difficult announcement about all of the disciples. Well, at least they're not all going to betray him. That's good. But they all are going to do something else about him. And so Jesus prophesies that the disciples will respond poorly uh, about his upcoming suffering. They will stumble, which means they will sin. They will stumble, which means they will sin. That's what scandalizo means, that, uh, to, to fall into sin or do something that's unrighteous or displeasing to God. And that's what, what's going to happen. So um, I'm just reporting like what the text says there. You'll be made to stumble. This isn't like, um, you know, just an incidental mistake. It's that they're fleeing from the Lord. They're not wanting to be associated with him. And that's a problem. Uh, and this happens necessarily so because it is written in accordance with Scripture, which has to be fulfilled. It's going to take place. This is part of the Christian doctrine of Scripture. Here's where we go in this matter of infallibility. That's the systematic theology kind of heading that this falls under. It, scripture cannot fail to accomplish what it was set forth. In other words, it cannot ever fail to do what its purpose is, what it says will occur, the promises that it makes, all of those will come to pass. In other words, they will never fail. 
what it was given to accomplish refers to its purpose. And the purpose of Scripture, of course, is multidimensional. It's not just to reveal Jesus to us, but it is to reveal Him, to tell us about the church, to tell us about God, man, sin, salvation, God's plan of redemption, the kingdom, what's coming in the future, what's happened in the past. All of those things are in a part of its purpose. Thus, Jesus knows what will happen. Now, he knew better than any human being what would happen. But if you were there and you knew that the reference in Zechariah to the shepherd referred to the Messiah, then you could deduce the same thing that he knew intuitively. That is, the Messiah had not been stricken up to this point in his life in any serious way, but you knew that he was about to be because it was this night and the next day that he was going to face uh, being hauled into the Gentiles, or Jews and Gentiles, and, and be stricken. And so you would be able to ascertain that even his closest followers would be scattered from him. Now the text that is referred to here is in one of the prophets, the minor prophets. Do you know right off the bat what it is? I think you were looking it up, weren't you? Yeah, it's Zechariah chapter 13, verse number 7. Zechariah 13, 7. Now this is somewhat of a difficult portion of Scripture, I will say. Here's why. It says in verse 1, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and uncleanness. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. What God is talking, excuse me, talking about here is the millennial kingdom. This is the part of the day of the Lord in that day, in that future time, in which there will be blessing upon the nation of Israel. Okay, so this is the millennial kingdom, which happens after the rapture, after the tribulation, then the millennial kingdom, according to the order of events in the scripture. And so uh, there's going to be a, a reduction in false prophecy, verses 3 to 4, uh, and 5, and then in 6 um, as well. So there's going to be a great increase in righteousness in that time. There'll be a fountain for sin and for uncleanness. In other words, there'll be great, a great measure of forgiveness that God will extend to them. And, and that's connected over to uh, chapter 12. In chapter 12, where God says in verse 10, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn. And it talks about the great mourning that will happen all the way down through verse 14. And then we, we just run right into chapter 13. Okay, so there's going to be a, a fountain for cleansing. There'll be mourning by the Jewish people over what they've done to the Messiah uh, and all of that. And then in verse 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who's my companion. It's actually like the Bible reverses time, goes backwards. Okay, now think before the millennium before the tribulation, before the rapture, before the church age, all the way back to when Messiah was to be cut off, according to Daniel 9, 26. 
that's when this event in verse 7 is going to happen, according to Zechariah. The sword awakes against the shepherd, against the man who is my companion. This is a very close associate of God. In fact, we know how close. So close he's his son. It says the Lord of hosts, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it shall come to pass in all that land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined. What is that period of time talking about? Whew, man, we're going back and forth really quick. We went all the way back to the time of Christ, and now the Bible's looking forward all the way to the tribulation, when the people of Israel will be purged and cleansed. And um, so you might ask, well, how, why is this forward and backward and forward again? I, I, this is how the prophets sometimes operate. They see things afar off and they just see the, a smattering of these events and they're able to, to prophesy about them. But I will try to help you with the, the second and third of these things, okay? The millennial kingdom, we'll leave that to the side for now. But the, you have Christ being smitten and you have the people of Israel being stricken. Why? Well, actually, um, the disciples were only the first of the sheep to be scattered. They were the ones that believed in Messiah, except for Judas, of course. But the nation as well, though rejecting Jesus through the present into the tribulation, they have an indissolvable connection with the Messiah. The world is going to persecute them as it did him. Are you with me? Jesus was stricken. They will be stricken. He was smitten. They would be also in a different sense, of course. But they, he is persecuted. They too will be persecuted. They hated Jesus. They will hate Jews during the tribulation. Okay, that's already been evidenced in the world. The hatred level against Jewish people is off the charts. It's unrational, irrational. It doesn't make sense. Only because they're God's people does it actually, we can kind of rationalize why it is, because the devil hates them and because they represent God. And close to that is the church represents God also, and so the devil hates the church, and he turns the world against the church also in very terrible ways. Um, so that's kind of the rationale. First Christ, then his people are going to be stricken. Now, one thing you might wonder is, how in the world would I know that this shepherd should have a capital S? How would I know that the sword is awaking against the Messiah? Uh, how do I know that identification? Well, first of all, Matthew 26, where we just read, what did it say? All of you will be made to stumble because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. We have to be not too smart to figure out, well, Jesus must be the shepherd and the disciples must be the sheep and they will be scattered. He will be stricken. We know from chapter 26, 27, 28 that he died, that he, he, he was killed. So it must be that Matthew's telling us that Zechariah is fulfilled in Jesus. 
So we have that help right there. Second of all, listen to this. This is, I think, an interesting uh, um, kind of connection that I don't know if I made explicitly in my mind before, but we read it already. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and they will look on me whom they pierced with what? A sword, some kind of spear, you know, some kind of sharp pointy instrument that the soldiers poked the Lord and out came blood and water. That's the same, the same thing here. Within the space of 10 verses or so, 10, 11, 12 verses, the one who's pierced is the one against whom God's sword, the instrumentality of God's wrath upon his shepherd was executed. And so we are able to connect the uh, passage about the one who, who was pierced with the one who uh, the sword awoke against. Okay? So those are two reasons why I would say we should be able to figure out that this is indeed the Messiah that we're talking about. Now, Jesus, back to Matthew. Now, we've spent enough time studying that passage, that uh, quoted passage. Jesus now prophesies that he will be raised from the dead. Did you notice that? After I have been raised. In other words, being stricken means not just being assaulted. It means being killed, murdered, dead, buried, uh, gotten rid of, they think, and then I will be raised, okay? And then he will go before them and see them in Galilee. So I was speaking with Jansen about this um, sort of the other day, and it just reminded me of it again when I uh, read this, about this question. Did Jesus preach the gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection? And, you know, if you stop and think about it for a minute, you might say, well, wait a minute, I mean... Paul says the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he was seen by witnesses. And we, we know that, yeah, he died, and he know, we, all that stuff happened at the end of the gospels. But what about from Matthew 1 to, say, 24? Did he preach the gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection? Um, maybe he didn't proclaim it openly among the crowds or religious leaders. I think largely because they rejected him, and so he did not privilege them to give them more gospel revelation. Listen, did you hear that? Listen with your ears. If you reject the revelation that God has given you, he will not give you any more. Even he who has, the Bible says, from him will be taken. That is the danger of knowing a lot of Scripture and hearing it and then turning away from it. it is an, it's, an, it's a unique danger that you don't have if you haven't heard the Word of God. You are without excuse if you reject the knowledge of God that you have been given, like that which comes from nature, Romans 1. And so God, the, the Bible is, is showing us here that Jesus turned to a method of teaching parables, he's He's actually hiding truth from people who don't care to listen to him, uh, speaking about it obliquely. But the fact is that even though we might ponder that for a second and think, huh, it doesn't seem like he's, he preached that. You know, we don't see it in the Sermon on the Mount. We don't see it in a number of his larger discourses. But notice this. 
the Bible does say that Jesus does preach, teach, that he would die, be buried, and rise again. Listen to these verses, Matthew 12, 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That implies he's buried and he's dead. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Burial is implied there, of course, he wouldn't have to be buried um, for those things to be true, but he was. Uh, there are some other personages in the scriptures who are very famous. They happen to be in Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses. They are killed, but they're not buried, but then they rise again. But anyway, and here we understand that he's, he's killed and buried and raised again. Matthew 17, the next chapter, but I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they do not uh, know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. So he's preaching his, his suffering, his death. Later in Matthew 17, verse 23, And they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And the disciples were exceedingly sorrowful about this. Matthew 26, 32, where we are, But after I've been raised implying his death, he will go before them into Galilee. And then fi finally, uh, one second, I think finally. No, not almost finally. Uh, Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. It sounds to me like Jesus is talking about his death his burial, and his resurrection, okay? Uh, I'll adapt a phrase that Thurman Hunter often uses when, he, when he's encouraging me from his seat, front seat there. He says, that's Bible. Well, I'll say this, that's gospel. That's gospel. Matthew 27, hear from the lips of his enemies. Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Well, there's the resurrection, if you've ever heard of the resurrection before, isn't there? So, so let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven sections just in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus preaches the death, burial, and resurrection of himself. And of course, we know that he says he came to give his life a ransom for many. He died for sinners. And all of those things, and we can combine from John, uh, Luke and John and Mark as well, and we could add to this list a number of verses in Scripture that record this idea. And so he's going he's gonna to die, he's going to rise from the dead. He's taught them what he's going to do and why he's doing it. So really the Gospels kind of give us the whole story in long form. You know, he doesn't reduce it down to two verses like the Apostle Paul does. It's the whole story, the whole background of that story. Now, Peter, good old Peter, vows never to stumble, even if it means his own death. Now, I often point this out, but I want to make sure that it's pointed out to you as well. In verse 35 at the end, it says, And so said all the disciples. They're like, Peter, you're our spokesman. You tell them. 
Couldn't have said it better myself. That's what we want, right? We want the same. All the disciples agreed. His and their desire and zeal were noted, and I would say somewhat commendable. His self-confidence, however, is not very commendable. He needed to temper his zeal with humility because he is a fallen person with certain moral weaknesses that are very difficult to overcome. Jesus reiterated not only that Peter would stumble despite his energetic claims to the contrary, but Peter's going to do something more also. What's he going to do? He's not only going to stumble, but he's going to deny the Lord three times. Three times. We know how this works out because we'll read later on, you know, we've done it before and we're going to get there in our series of preaching, but we know how this was. And so we know that deny means something like disavow any connection. You know, if you're a, I guess if you're a secret agent, then your home government will disavow any connection to you because they don't want to, you know, compromise their mission or whatever. Disavow. Well, Peter was going to disavow any connection with Jesus. How awful. Peter asserted not only that he would not stumble, he would not be scattered, but he also said that he would die for Jesus. That's bold. That's bold. Now let me give you a couple of points of application, and I know I'm kind of pushing through this, but for the sake of kind of the structure of the message, I want to give the two parts, the kind of explanation of the narrative and then also an application of the narrative. First of all, for us, we too can stumble. James 3, 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. If any man, what does it say there? If any man were able to walk perfectly with regard to his tongue, you know, but so we stumble in many ways and often with our tongue. Um, we stumble when there's difficulty. We stumble when there is victory. How's that? Well, when there's difficulty, we get upset. We, have, we get short of temper. Peter, this is a long night. It's cold outside. Remember, he's warming himself at the fire later on. Persecution seems imminent. Bad news has been piling on after bad news. A dear friend has been taken into custody. It's easier to cave into the flesh and just say, phooey on it. Forget it. I'm done. Trying to distance yourself from Jesus in that case. So when difficulty comes, we do stumble. But also when victory comes, we can become overzealous and we can lose sight of humility. We fall just as quickly as we rose when we had our spiritual victories. Have you ever experienced that before? Have a really good day, and then the next day, or later the same day, oops, we have a, a real problem. Uh, we face great difficulty in our land you know, today because so many people are favorable to so many wicked things. And you know, like we saw with the election yesterday, so many people in favor of abortion. And so the circumstances are bad. It's easy to become upset and angry and blame stupid people for voting or not voting or not enough good people or, you know, they're all ignorant or whatever. But 
Are you stumbling when you do that? When we do that? We must not stumble because there's far more to the situation than just the end result of the vote that they cast. There are people who have been taught wrongly. There are people who know nothing of God's righteousness. There are people who know it but reject it. There's spiritual blindness. There's hardness of heart. My friends, there's impending doom, judgment. For people who support the dismemberment of children from their mother's womb, they're going to stand before God at the great white throne and give an account of their works. There are people who extend the, vote to extend the reign of terror in the womb, and they will give an account when they stand before God. Justice will be served. It might not be served in this life, but it will be served. God will see to it. Some of those, I hope, will repent, and their sins will be laid upon the shoulders of Christ, as it were, and they will be forgiven. But I am afraid many of them will not as they carry out the sacrament of the progressive left, which is abortion, the sacrifice of children for their own convenience and to fulfill their own lust. All of that can cause us to stumble. We forget what we're here for. Thinking about Peter, by the way, what are we here for? We're here to be ambassadors for Christ. We're here to witness to people. Those people need Christ. They don't, some of these people don't know. I mean, they're like just blind, just whatever they hear. You know, they hear from the media, they just repeat that over and over. Their minds are darkened, all of that. But now thinking about Peter, so, so we're, we're wary that we can stumble in many ways. When we think about Peter, we can appreciate his desire to serve Christ faithfully. We should want to do that also. But each one of us needs to temper our thinking with humility. We are finite. We're limited. We're morally compromised. We're overly confident in our intellect, too often arrogant. Sometimes, too often times, humans generally and even believers fall into this. We think we have it figured out better than God does. How about the reality? When we get angry at God for doing something, or we think we know better than Him. Look, my friends, I mean, God has been around only about 6,000 years longer than you have, and actually infinitely longer than that before 6,000 years ago. And He has an infinite intellect, and He's infinite in His extent in space, and He has no limit to His knowledge or wisdom. And you think you've got it figured out? We are children. We're like the little toddler running around the church that doesn't know much of anything, just kind of instinct and, you know, can't express themselves, uh, can't work a job, can't drive a car, can't add two numbers. And, and that's how we are compared to God. And we think we have it figured out. We need to, we need to take, you know, the, the recipe for success says take a pinch or two of humility and add it into the mixture. And then add a cup more of humility and a couple, a couple cups and stir well. Get it into your system, this humility. 
Oh, my friends, how we need a shepherd, don't we? Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Do not scatter from this shepherd, dear ones. You know, you picture yourself as one of those sheep off on the mountains, wild and high, strayed from the shepherd, and he's out there looking for you, and you don't realize if you just stay close to his side, he will guide you, keep you, protect you, teach you, lead you, nourish you, and yes, even comfort you when you need comforting. But if you stray away, you move yourself outside of his grace and mercy. In that time, it says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But nowadays, the striking of the shepherd is done. But nowadays, we scatter from him anyway. All we like have gone astray. Everyone to his own way. So we scatter from the Lord. What ultimate good are you going to find when you're wandering out in the wilderness out there? Those of us that are Christians know you can go out and search for yourself out in the world, try to find yourself, and what you're going to find is the same thing you started with. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to find trouble, but you're going to find the same thing you started with, yourself. And you're not going to have a sense of purpose or your place in the universe or anything if you don't know God. You know, if you don't know the forest, how are you going to know how you as a tree fit into that forest? Back to Peter, one more thing. Um, a couple more things, just briefly. If, if you were, would you be able to be like Peter and say, I'm willing to die for Jesus? Even if you're overconfident, would you be able to say that? that you're willing to die for him? Would you ever say that? Have you ever thought that? I mean, even if we say Peter was overconfident and he needed some humility, he did say it. Have we said it? Thankfully, most of us will not have to go to that extent. But even if we don't have to die for him, what extent are we willing to go for the Lord? Will you scatter when he's blasphemed or will you stand up for him when the time comes? Will you live for him? Will you associate with his people? Will you stick your neck out and go to church and take other time out of your week to go there and be with God's people? Will you spend time in the word of God? Or, no, I wouldn't even do that. Criticize Peter all you want, but when you're pointing a finger at Peter... Just remember how many you're pointing back at yourself. Have you ever denied the Lord like Peter did? We'll read about that coming up. Could you do that again sometime? Could you deny him again? How about this? Let's pray that God will protect us from ourselves so that we will never deny him. Finally, the Lord did not stop his mission just because his close friends failed him. He kept on going and completed the work. So should you. Don't give up even if people around you do do that. My friends, elections are not our hope. Christ is our hope. It's not our turn to rule the kingdoms of this world. We continue to patiently wait for our turn to govern the world, and that will come when the kingdom is inaugurated not in the present age, 
We shouldn't be overly distressed about the nations raging against God, nor think by voting or social action we can change things to become Christian. We're not going to change this into a Christian world. We're not going to change this into a Christian nation. Some doubt that it was even ever a Christian nation. It may have been a deist nation. It may have been a nation that recognized God and had some common grace, but this wasn't a Christian, fully Christian nation. It will come someday, but not now. It's a pipe dream to think that we're going to get this back to a Christian nation because most of our population, may I say the vast majority of our population, is not Christian. In fact, most of it's plainly pagan. And judging by 60 or 58 or however many percent of people think it's okay to kill babies, it is pagan. There's no argument against that now. It's proven. It's documented. We have another job to do. Part of our job, of course, as individuals is to make the world a more tolerable place to live. Clean it up so it looks nice. Hard work, you know, help people who have needs. By our local acts of kindness and benevolence, we can make the world a a more tolerable place. But the real job we have is, together as a church and Christians, is to be ambassadors, to be witnesses for Christ. And I pray that you will not scatter from him or turn away from that job, which is our calling and why God has left us here. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity tonight to minister the gospel and to hear and and read of it and to see uh, what one little portion of Scripture has to do with Jesus prophesying that the sheep will scatter. And we've seen some helpful application from this tonight. Lord, I pray that we would obey some aspect that has caught our attention. Use it to, to... Make us more like Christ and to be more humble and to be more steadfast in our obedience to him. We thank you. Thank you for these dear ones. Thank you for those online that I can't see, but I only imagine uh, being there. And I pray that you will bless them and keep them and make your face smile upon them and give them peace. Help us to be faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, I want to thank you all. Uh, For those of you online, thank you for participating with us this evening. And if you're listening later, after November 9th, thank you especially for taking your time to do that. We appreciate it. And I hope this message has been of some, some help and some challenge to you and you as well here at the church tonight. God bless you. Have a good night. Amen.